Good morning, Simon Trevoranis. Good morning, Devin Wilkins. And good morning, everybody out there, and welcome to Insight Peterborough. Um, this is St. Patrick's Day weekend, and uh, so you can uh, definitely bet that uh, we have some Irish uh, music from the Irish Rovers who moved to um, Vancouver, I think it was. And um, have you, uh, can you see um, the Black Velvet Band there, uh, Simon? The Black Velvet Band, let me see. Irish Rovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the Black we? Velvet Band, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. All right. You'd think she was queen of the land And her hair hung over her shoulders Tied up with a black velvet band In a neat little town they called Belfast Apprentice to trade I was bound And many an hour sweet happiness I spent in that neat little town Till bad misfortune came o'er me that caused me to stray from the land Far away from me friends and relations They follow the black velvet band Her eyes, they shone like the diamonds You'd think she was queen of the land And her hair hung over her shoulders Tied up with a black velvet band Well, I went out strolling one evening not meaning to go very far When I met with a fickleson damsel She was selling her trade in the bar When I watched, she took from a customer And slipped it right into my hand Then the law came and put me in prison Bad luck to her black velvet band Her eyes is shone like the diamond and she was queen of the land And her hair hung over her shoulder Tied up with a black velvet band Next morning before judge and jury For trial I had to appear Then the judge, he says me I'm fellow The case against you is quite clear And seven long years is your sentence here goes the Van Diemen's land Far away from your friends and relations They follow the black velvet band Her eyes, it shone like a diamond You'd think she was queen of the land And her hair hung over her shoulders Tied up with a black velvet band Look them all, ye jolly young Or they'll fill you with whiskey and porter Till you are not able to stand And the very next thing that you know, my lads You've landed in Van Diemen's land Her eyes, they shone like the diamonds You'd think she was queen of the land was the Black Velvet Band with the Irish Rovers. I have a friend here in uh, Peterborough who uh, grew up in the same town as the Millers did before they came to Vancouver, uh, the town of Ballymena oh. in uh, Ireland. So we uh, probably will hear a little bit more from the Irish Rovers 
uh, near the end of the show. Well, I want to um, uh, tell you about, share with you um, some information which is as close to breaking news as Insight Peterborough will ever get. Whoa, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyone who listens to Trent Radio will know uh, John and Lynn Morris uh, from uh, Wednesday morning. They have their show, a uh, uh, country music show, on Wednesday morning. He is, uh, John is training at home with his new guide dog, Casey. And I'm sure that uh, John will tell you a whole lot more about Casey when uh, they come uh, back on next Wednesday morning. But he's a nice pooch, and I think he's taller than Frankie is. Oh. Frank is a big dog, everybody. He is. So you know, big, big lab. Yeah, he is. And I think Casey, who is only 22 months, is uh, still taller than uh, Frankie. Um, I should also say that John is the uh, Lions District A3 chairperson for Leader Dogs. So he'll have a brand spanking new uh, puppy dog to take with him. Uh, and he had his trainer with him yesterday at the uh, monthly meeting of the Canadian Council of the Blind. And um, I, uh, his trainer's name is Carlos, and uh, I got the idea to take my recorder along with me. So what we're going to do is play a song by John uh, called Walkin' the Dog, and then uh, we'll hear what Carlos had to say about leader dogs. Here we go. an easy life I never knew until the day that I left you but I'm a carefree lad that's seen the light I'm a walking a dog all the day and all Carlos Galuser, and I'm one of the senior instructors at Leader Dogs for the Blind. Uh, I've been there 42 years now, so I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you need and, Spanish. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I used to train all the Spanish students that, that would come to Leader Dogs from all over Latin America. In fact, we have a group there right now from Spain at the school. Oh, and they come in all the time to get their dogs. But anyway, we brought Casey here 
to uh, you know train with John. It's called the home delivery, and we do about 20% home deliveries out of leader dogs every year. We're putting out around 250 dogs a year. Uh, wow. So anyway, Casey's one of the home delivery dogs. Uh, we do it only for people that have had a dog in the past. We call them replacement students. And uh, it's, it's anywhere between a seven to a 10 day training cycle in your home environment. And uh, things are going pretty well, if not real well, with Casey and John. John has the knowledge, you know, to work a dog guide. And Casey here has been really raised well by the puppy raisers, which is critical. Uh, and John can tell you more about that at this meeting or maybe a future one after he speaks with them because he hasn't talked to them yet, but he does know who they are. Um, and Casey is a yellow Labrador. Our breeding program raises you know, uh, shepherds, labs, and goldens. Uh, labs are predominant dog, probably used by most dog guide schools, you know. Look around here right now, guys. Yeah. Lab, 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 lab. Yeah, every, everywhere you look, there's labs, you know. Because they're really good dogs. Their temperament is stable. You know, what they do today, they'll probably do tomorrow. Well, a shepherd's not like that, you know. Um, and, and we have a puppy program at the school where we, we have about 400 families every year that help us raise these dogs, primarily in the States, you know, and primarily right near Rochester. You all know where we are, right? Near Detroit, you know. So we can get to our puppy raisers readily if we have to. We have puppy meetings at the school, and uh, that's another whole program, you know, that probably John can tell you guys about in the future. But anyway, Casey's here, and uh, John's here, and I'm here. And How old is Casey? 21 months and pushing 22, you know, yeah. Most of the dogs, he's a puppy program dog, obviously, you know, and, and really over 90% of our dogs are puppy program dogs, you know, raised to be dog guides. Uh, we do use some donor dogs, you know, uh, very selectively, but our labs and goldens and shepherds are the, are the main dogs, as I mentioned, that we're using. And um, it's not easy to be a dog guy. For those of you that don't have a dog guy, <laughs> you know, they, they have to work. They have to be patient. I mean, look at all these guys in here right now. They just lie down, they go to sleep, and they don't bug anybody. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. And then when they're working on the street, they're supposed to be responsible. You know, they're supposed to guide. They're not supposed to become distracted by smells. In other words, they're not supposed to be smelling the ground, picking things up, you know, being distracted by things in alleys. Lamp post, you know, anywhere where it might be a smell-oriented distraction, they should be attentive to their owner and not the people walking by, especially kids, right? And don't look for others' pee mail. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We hope. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And, and you know, we, how many other dogs have walked by that same post? Exactly. That's, that's the problem. The yeah. And that's your general public, you know, <laughs> that's letting their dog relieve itself at will, even though it's on leash. But they're still letting it pee on the post and, yeah. and, and you know, drag them up into the alley to check out what's been dropped in there. So, you know, <laughs> the general public can be a real big concern yeah. for a guide dog user. You, you guys know that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We also give an O&M class at the school, by the way, at Leader Dogs, which I don't know if other dog guide schools in Canada offer. Uh, it's called Accelerated Mobility Program where we uh, offer free of charge, everything, <coughs> travel to get there, everything, regardless of where you're from. And uh, we bring you in for a week, and what we want to do is, okay, so you've got cane skills, right? Well, you want to be better, because you can always be better. Yep. So if you want to be better at your cane skills, then we're willing to train you for a week at the school, one-on-one, -on -one with a mobility instructor for a week. Wow. So, you know, most of you that took cane travel, know that the mobility instructor doesn't stay with you for a week straight out and they won't stay with you for four or five hours a day usually wow. you know but uh, we bring into our residents you live there eat there sleep there interact with other people from all over the world really that are there for the uh, mobility program mm -hmm. so that's something else we offer those that, that, that maybe want a dog guide you know in the future or don't feel the dog guide fits their needs and they just want to get better cane skills, okay?
So that's something if you're interested, get on the web, www.leaderdog, and, and look up the, uh, the uh, Kane Skills classes, okay? Anyway, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so it's good to be here, uh, and I'll be here till Sunday, okay? Okay, folks, so thanks for letting me talk. And that was Carlos talking uh, about leader dogs, uh, which is in Rochester, Michigan, near Detroit. And also, um, uh, John Morris's new dog, Casey, who I, I'm sure uh, John will tell you a lot more about. Yeah. How, how long do folks have dogs on average? I mean, I, yeah, I'm just curious. Usually around... Uh, between 10 and 11 years of age for the dog and uh, and then they retire but Tad uh, John's uh, previous guide dog now is just uh, retired and he's going on 13 oh wow yeah what a what a fantastic uh, life of work yeah that's great, for great sure. career yes definitely and so these folks that come in and, and do these sessions Carlos this is a regular thing um, the American schools do more home training than Canadian schools do, although I have heard of it being done. I think uh, the school where Frankie is from, Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind, does home training closer to Ottawa, where they are. Um, and I don't know whether the school in Oakville, the Lions Foundation, the Lions, uh, uh, Foundation of Canada uh, Dog Guide School uh, does home training or not, but uh, mostly it's the American schools. It's it's really interesting from my view, I guess. There's so many different organizations involved, and they seem to be somehow in competition with each other, and there's... there's uh different different folks from different uh, organizations all over the place, and everybody's got a dog from a different group, and it seems kind of interesting that that's not... Uh, I don't want to say more regulated, but maybe more standardized, I guess? Well, if there weren't as many schools as there are, there would be a huge waiting list. Yeah, hey? And I think that's why there are as many schools as there are. I think there are maybe 14 in the States, and uh, we have four or five here in Canada. I guess it just grows to meet the demand, is that it? Yeah, it does, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are uh, service dogs as well. Um, Oakville um, trains several types of uh, assistance dogs. And um, there, are, uh, there are other schools as well, the uh, Pacific uh, Assistant Dog Society. That's hard to say. It's a mouthful, is it? Yeah. There's it also is. a uh, speech therapy. Uh, yeah, no, never mind. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. that's what it I comes mean. along with it. It's a dog training and then a speech therapy <laughs> to pronounce the name of the place. That's right. Yeah. So, so service dogs are wonderful assistive devices for folks. There's uh, uh, all kinds of challenges that have not been solved with uh, with something like a service dog. There's still so many things that that there aren't solutions for. And uh, we're celebrating a month of, of, uh, of things to, well, we discussed it before the show, but I guess National Engineering Month? Yeah, is that this month? That's March. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll... You did a symposium, didn't you, in October about that? Yeah, so the National Engineering Month is March, but uh, Peterborough has, I guess, the three engineering organizations. We've got the PEO, the Professional Engineers of Ontario. We've got IEEE, which I'm not going to attempt to to label, and then uh, and then OSET. Uh, I think it's Ontario Association for Certified Engineers and Technicians. And so those three organizations work together in this community and they, they do really cool events. Uh, so they do an engineering symposium, which is like a like a lecture series or like a like a course or like a like a workshop. Uh, and then they do a, a challenge. And the, the engineering challenge they do during National Engineering Month, March, and the engineering symposium they do in October. So this month is National Engineering Month. We've already done the, the, uh, the challenge. Mm -hmm. And this year the theme 
for the challenge was aviation. It oh. was it was a really cool event. There was uh, well over a hundred students gathered at uh, the Evinrude, not the Evinrude. Yeah, it was the Evinrude Center, and uh, they were making airplanes to to fit into a crossbow-style launcher. Wow! And the students were trying to make the plane go as far and as long as it could. Wow! And so only a couple of them made it across the whole building and hit the wall on the other side. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it was it was a great event, and we had a an individual from uh, Horizon Aircraft, a very uh, innovative company working out of Lindsay, working on hybrid diesel electric aircraft, uh, come and, and do a keynote speech. Uh, so that was really cool. Uh, but but yeah, as you mentioned there, accessibility is is a priority for the folks here in Peterborough, and the the uh, engineering community acknowledges that. Uh, in October, uh, I know that it's not. National Engineering Month then, but but the theme of the engineering symposium last year was engineering for accessibility, and uh, so I just want to share just a brief overview of what that event looked like, mm-hmm. just to remind folks that this is National Engineering Month and we should be we should be thinking to try and engineer things as inclusively as possible. So, the engineering symposium started off with speakers. We had four speakers, and uh, it was hosted at Fleming College. And then we went on to a to a panel of folks. So the attendees of this event were mostly engineers, and uh, the speakers were were experts from from community organizations and a couple of folks from from uh, out of town. So our first speaker uh, was Linda Staples. She works with uh, Fleming, and I'll read her bio very briefly. Uh, Linda has extensive knowledge in accessibility and AODA legislation going back many years. In 2005, uh, she participated on several of the Accessibility Standards Committees, which were a fundamental uh, component of writing the Accessibility of Ontario's with Disability Act, AODA legislation. Her ongoing work with the Accessibility Directorate of Ontario keeps her in the know for meeting the province's mandate for inclusion by 2025. Now a member of the Fleming team, Linda's role is to share her knowledge and experience with faculty and staff. And Linda shared a really uh, well-connected kind of uh, high level and also connected to the ground so that everybody could understand what was going on, uh, an overview of, of where we were at with, with legislation and with where folks needed to be uh, and what, what people needed to be thinking about when they were considering accessibility. And I thought that the questions that got asked of Linda were really, really on point and uh, it went really well. Good. Have you met Linda? No, I haven't had the pleasure. It would be great if we had her on the show. She's she's uh, a fantastic speaker, and uh, Fleming is is very fortunate to have her. Yeah, we should definitely do that. Right on. Okay, and then we had a duo, a duo. We had Ben McCall, oh, yeah, who is his special projects coordinator. Uh, sorry, so he works with Trent University, and I'll, I'll just read his bio. Mm-hmm. Ben is the special projects coordinator in the Center for Human Rights, Equity, and Accessibility at Trent. As an advocate for social media, oh sorry, excuse me, wow. Advocate for the social model of disability, Ben has a passion for accessible document creation and other forms of accessible technology. Currently, Ben's goals are centered on creating stronger community ties to share best practices around accessibility. Ben has been involved in a number of accessibility initiatives, both locally and nationally, including consulting for the Federal Accessibility Act, sitting on the city of Peterborough's Accessibility Subcommittee, helping co- co-found the Peterborough chapter of the Canadian Council of the Blind, and instructing parasports in, Whit- in Whitby. Uh, so Ben told a very uh, interesting story about uh, a, a hypothetical community where everybody was in a wheelchair, and the person who was who was uh, the the outsider was the person who who was walking and the whole community had been designed for individuals with wheelchairs and the person who who showed up who was walking was uh, was feeling like they had a disability because the entire environment was not designed for them and so it was kind of a thought experiment yeah. and i thought that it was really refreshing and and a lot of the folks uh, in the audience found it refreshing as well uh, so so uh, very interesting insights there. That would be cool to have him share that with us on uh, during National Accessibility Week. 
Yeah, maybe. That's, uh, yeah. I'll certainly mention that to him. But, okay. But uh, it certainly puts things into perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, that uh, engineers or folks that are designing physical spaces or designing products or designing things, I mean, it's not always easy to kind of shift their perspective and think about things in that way. So, right. So it was, it was a valuable, valuable story to hear. Good. Uh, ben co-presented with Andrea Walsh who works in the field of accessibility with issues ranging from AODA compliance to the creation of accessible digital documents. Andrea completed her Master's of Science degree in Occupational Therapy at McMaster and is currently registered with the College of Occupational Therapists of Ontario. Wow. Yeah, so the two of them kind of talked about the, uh, the process of putting together accessible documents and how important that process is and then what's being done uh, by Trent and so on to... to uh, kind of standardize that and make it make it as easy as possible terrific yep and then we had <clears throat> a chap named Mosin Majubnia from Toronto he's a master's graduate of uh, OCAD University's inclusive design program and he is an uh, inclusive designer with a focus on accessible living and digital accessibility uh, his clients include the Ministry of uh, Labor the Ministry of Advanced Educational and Skills Development, and the Ministry of Natural Resources uh, and Forestry. So he, he does consulting directly for the City of Toronto and for other organizations to, to uh, help them set things up in a more accessible way and to design their, their uh, events and their, their services uh, to, be, to be more inclusive. So, so uh, Mosin came and shared... Uh, a really interesting kind of overview of, of where accessibility is going and uh, what his vision is for, for innovation in that field. And, and uh, as, as kind of a, the cutting edge uh, kind of expert, uh, I thought it was really interesting to hear him say all those things. Uh, he, it's, it's really nice to have folks like Mosin come all the way from Toronto to share their insights. And, and uh, it, was a, it was a great group of folks up there in front of the room trying to trying to educate us, uh, I was really, really glad to have, have Mosin. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And uh, Peterborough itself is right up there as far as, um, uh, you know, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, innovative uh, innovations uh, with regard oh, yeah. to accessibility. Yeah. I think it takes a willing community, hey? I mean, yep, sure does. There's so many things that are already built, so many solutions that are already made, and just a matter of implementing them or having the, the people in charge or the decision makers actually choosing those options instead. Yes. I have often found in the seven years that I've been here that, uh, that Peterborough is a very inclusive uh, community. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, th- I think that the willingness for, for organizations uh, to kind of take on projects and to and to highlight accessibility i think is it, it definitely supports that yeah great there's a, a champion a local champion in accessibility uh, who who was our kind of final individual speaker his name is Lori howlett many of you folks might have heard of Lori howlett uh, because of his really cool company called unique inventions inc uh-uh. and so Lori howlett is the founder of local company unique inventions and uh, he and his team have been uh, building hockey sledges for the past 20 years. Great. They've been featured on BBC's World Feature on the Paralympic Games. And here's a quote. We are motivated to continually improve and innovate to help them improve their game. Uh, So he's been providing, or he and his company have been providing uh, athletes all over the world with sledge hockey sledges. And uh, they're made just here in Peterborough. And he and his team have got a, a whole shop packed full of equipment. They're innovating their own processes. Uh, he, he self-describes as, as not an engineer, uh, but the way that he approaches problems and the way that he addresses things is certainly from a design and from a... Uh, he, he certainly engineers uh, his workshop. I mean, there are processes. For example, there's the bucket seats. So imagine an individual sitting in a in a little bucket chair mm-hmm. on a skate. That's basically what a sledge is. It's a, it's a skate with a, bu- with a bucket on top. And then they have a couple of spikes on either, in, in either hand, which is how they propel themselves. Ah. So Lori has been 
uh, kind of innovating and building these things, and they're the best ones. The the, the uh, sledges that are built here in Peterborough are some of the best ones in the world. Wow! And uh, so that's why they get they get shipped all over the place to athletes all over the world. And uh, the buckets themselves, this is not a universal design situation. This is not a uh, we build one design and then mass produce it for every single person. Uh, so this speaker at the very end of the of this you know the speaker series was really really pertinent because you have to design each sledge for the user. Right. Every single sledge has got to be custom made to fit somebody. So the buckets needed to be kind of molded around uh, the right shape and size for the person. So they've got uh, so Lori has innovated these these extruding machines to to take the plastic that they make the the buckets out of and form it around certain shapes and and strange nearly impossible manufacturing situations that they've engineered ways to uh, to make it work. So it's really quite an impressive thing. Uh, if you ever get a chance to check out uh, unique inventions, I encourage you to do so. We should go over there and do a remote for Insight Peterborough. Yeah, it's it's super cool in there. Yeah. Very interesting guy. And so his story was was uh, was very personal and uh, kind of came from, from grassroots. I mean, identified that uh, he wanted to make something so that people could play. He, he saw that uh, some folks weren't weren't getting a chance to participate in, in some fun activities, so he built them something to play in. And uh, that's, that just started him off. He was just a tinkerer at the start and just wanted to, to make some stuff for, fe- for people to, to enjoy. And uh, his, his particular interest was folks with disabilities. So he, uh, he was just pumping out things. He was building uh, wagons and bikes and, wow. and things like that. And then he got into the sledges and uh, uh, innovated that process. But, but his story was, was a very personal one. And uh, it was certainly a nice way to, to kind of wrap up the speaker series. Uh, really, really glad to have had Lori come out there. Yeah, that's great. And he brought a bunch of the sledges, too. Did he? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. And then we had a few familiar faces. Uh, we did a panel at the end, and the panel was just kind of rapid fire. We had everybody share a brief update about uh, who they are and, and what they're all about, and then we had questions from the audience. And so... The folks who I'll describe next have all been on the show, so I won't give them, I won't read their full bio, but we okay. had we had the wonderful Alec Denies uh-huh. present, so uh, past Paralympian, uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful dude. And then we had Jason King of CPD, mm-hmm. and we had Theodore Cook, who we haven't had on here for a long time. I think he was on here one time. Yeah, talking about White Cane Week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Theodore Cook, computing uh, systems uh, graduate. So we had some experts from, from a variety of different fields. And so I thought that the, the engineering symposium, uh, I thought it went really well. The content was, was, uh, was right on point, And I thought that there was enough interesting pieces that came from all different sides to, to cover the topic. So uh, I thought it was a good time. That's great, and uh, thanks for sharing that with us during Engineering mo- Month, which is March. Of course. That's great. Of course. Okay. Well, we have uh, two ways that we can go. We can either do a demonstration of the Google Home Mini, or we can save that and uh, do that another time and uh, replay a an interview that I did with Dr. Morris Sherman about um, uh, hepatitis C, saying that this is liver month. What do you think? Well, we may have time to do both. Both? Ah. If we start now. All right. Let's do the, uh, let's do the deck talk. Um, it's a, a screen reader thing that is actually programmed, that is actually being programmed to sing. So it'll do uh, You Are My Sunshine, and then we'll hear the uh, demonstration of the Google Home Mini. How's that? Sounds good. That's, that's pretty funny. All here, right. here it comes. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, 
Stop timer. Hey Google, get me an Uber. Sure, here's Uber. Hi, this is Uber. Would you like to use Skylark Avenue as your pickup location? Cancel. Sure, canceled. Hey Google, start iHeartRadio Awards voting. Sure, here's iHeartRadio Awards voting. Hi again, it's Seacrest. Ready to vote for the iHeartRadio Music Awards? Most powerful female voice? Yes. That's what I like to hear. Let's do it. The nominees for most powerful female voice are Brianna, Adele, Beyonce, Ariana Grande, Carrie Underwood, and Florence Welsh of Florence and the Machine. Now, the question is, who would you like to vote for? Rihanna. All right, your vote for Rihanna, done. Thank you for your vote. Don't forget to tune in to our iHeartRadio Music Awards Sunday, March 5th, 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific on TBS, TNT, and True TV or on your iHeartRadio app. Thanks again. Take care. I had to vote for Rihanna, right? She was the first person to ever uh, include a album cover completely in Braille for her uh, album uh, Anti. Hey, Google, tell me a joke. One joke coming up. I have a pet tree. It's kind of like having a pet dog, but the bark is quieter. <laughs> hey, Google, sing me a song. La, 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 la. Hey, Google, play CNN. Streaming CNN from TuneIn. NFL fans looking for a special gift for the football fan in your life? Visit nflphotostore.nfl.com, the league's official online photo store. Hey, Google, stop. Dad even plays the commercials. Hey, Google, what's my day look like? Good afternoon, James. The time is 2.40 p.m. The weather in Merritt Island currently is 79 degrees and partly cloudy with a high of 79 degrees. Your commute to work is currently 60 minutes with light traffic if you take FL 528 West by car. Today at 3 p.m., you have record Google Home podcast. Have a good one. Here's the latest news from NPR News Summary at 2 p.m. today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Trump is widely expected hey, to Google. get a bounce in his... Next track. From Fox News at 2 p.m. today. Fox News Radio. Hey, Google. Stop. Okay, now we just keep going through my news. Hey, Google. Play Captain America Civil War. All right. Captain America Civil War from Netflix. Playing on Fire Swamp. Day. A vast flat icy plain beneath a cloudy gray sky. A wide mountain looms on the horizon. A caption reads 1991. On the mountain top is a military base. Three large hatches lie flush with the snow-swept ground. Inside the base, two guards simultaneously turn keys either side of a heavy metal door. The double doors open outwards, revealing a gray wall housing a safe. In camouflage fatigues and a red beret, Colonel Karpov strides towards the safe. Then keys in a code, 17826. The safe hatch, which bears the Hydra Octopus skull symbol. Hey Google, play BuzzFeed on YouTube using Fire Swamp. Sure, playing BuzzFeed from YouTube on Fire Swamp. so much for coming out here to the Squad Wars live stream on BuzzFeed Video. Give it up for yourselves in the audience. Thanks for being here. Okay, Google. Stop. Okay. If you uh, were wondering what Fire Swamp is, that's the name I've given to my uh, Chromecast television. I'm using Chromecast Ultra to connect my TV to the Wi-Fi network, and I can cast uh, Netflix and YouTube videos to that. Hey, Google. Play Katy Perry on Pandora. Playing the Pandora station called Katy Perry. Hey Google, stop. Hey Google, shop for paper towels. Okay, here's something from Costco on Google Express. I can get Brawny extra large pick a size paper towels, 12 rolls of 80 sheets for $21.29 after tax. Should I order that? No. 
All right, so you can also shop online if you registered with Google Express. Um, you just uh, go in the Google Home app. You can do everything through there. You can sign up for Google Shopping now. It's a new feature. Um, and you can uh, enter your payment, default payment information, and it'll just go ahead and ship to you. Well, we are going ahead and wrap it up here. If you have any questions, you can contact us at cbt at coolblindtech.com. You can contact me directly at james at coolblindtech.com. Follow us on Twitter at coolblindtech. And, of course, like us on Facebook. All right. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I will talk to you again very soon. Say goodbye, Google. Goodbye, Google. Well, first of all, Doc. That was funny. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of action going on in there. Right, I'll say. So anyway, I really like my Google Home Mini. I, I have one at home and uh, I don't think I've been quite as adventurous with mine as he has, but it's certainly great to find out the the time or the weather while I'm flying low trying to get out of the house in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. As I mentioned, March is uh, liver awareness month and I don't I don't mean cooking liver either, although I love cooked liver. But uh, I'm talking about uh, something much more serious. And uh, last November, I did uh, a an, an, uh, phone interview with Dr. Morris Sherman from the Liver Foundation uh, in uh, Toronto. So uh, here's that interview. Well, first of all, Dr. Sherman, thank you very much for being on the uh, program with us. Can you remind us again how important the liver is to the human body? Well, uh, you can't exist without a liver. Um, or if your liver's not working properly, you, you really get terribly sick and can die. So it's, it's crucial. And uh, I, I take it that the liver performs uh, a, a number of functions in the body. Um, it's kind of like the chemical factory in the body. It takes all the things that uh, we ingest through our intestinal system and it breaks them down and if they're toxins, it excretes them. And if it's uh, substances, chemicals that we need for the body, it reassembles them in the proteins, fats and other substances that the body can use. Now, how do people, uh, you're right, the Canadian Liver Foundation is doing a campaign at the moment uh, called um, Could You Have It? How, what is hepatitis C and how do people, how can people get it? Okay. Well, hepatitis C is an infection. It's a virus which sits in the liver. It causes inflammation. The inflammation in turn causes the, the laying down of scar tissue. And when you have enough scar tissue, that's the condition known as cirrhosis. Uh, and then as the disease progresses and as more and more uh, scar tissue is laid down, it, uh, it replaces sufficient normal liver function, normal liver tissue, that liver function starts to be impaired. With all the inflammation, cells die and have to be replaced. Uh, and this process of cell death and cell regeneration uh, leads to the development of mutations in the genetic material of the cell, and this ultimately can lead to cancer. So the end result of hepatitis C for many, many patients is a cirrhosis, liver failure, and liver cancer. How do you get hepatitis C? Mm -hmm. Well, when we, hepatitis C was first uh, identified, it was recognized that this was a, transmitted by blood-to-blood uh, -blood contact. And essentially what that meant in those days was needles, and it still means that uh, for the most part. But the question is, where did the needles come from? Initially, we thought it was transfusion uh, with contaminated blood. Then we thought it was uh, through injection drug use, with sharing of needles. And all of those are, are, are true, although nobody gets it from transfusion in Canada anymore. But the majority, the vast majority of people who have hepatitis C did not acquire it through uh, transfusion or through injection drug use. They acquire
actually the majority of patients who have hepatitis C did not get them through some stigmatizing behavior. So can you have the symptoms for quite a while before you realize that you're sick? Well, the problem with hepatitis C and, and many other liver diseases is that you don't have symptoms until the liver fails. So you don't know you've got the disease until it's really very, very late in the, in the stage of the disease at a, point, at a time point at which it may not be possible to do anything about it. How long might you have had the disease before you begin to notice symptoms? It could be anywhere from 10 to 50 years. Oh my goodness. So the Canadian Liver Foundation and other uh, liver-related groups have uh, recommended that people born between 1945 and 1975 should be tested for hepatitis C. And it requires a simple blood test that only needs to be done once. And the reason for this is because most of the infections occurred in the 1950s to early 1960s. And that uh, birth cohort from 1945 to 1975 includes somewhere between 70 to 80% of all hepatitis C in Canada. Whether it's Canadian-born or immigrant populations, they all, the majority fit into that age uh, category. And if you look at it another way, uh, somewhere in the range of 2 to 3% of people in that age group will turn out to have hepatitis C. And how common is hepatitis C at the moment? Somewhere in the range of 10,000 cases a year are notified to Health Canada. Wow. Uh, so can they, can people, sorry? mostly not new cases. These are mostly people who've been infected many, many years ago and who are only now being diagnosed because somebody discovers some abnormal liver blood tests or because they're being screened or for some process, some medical condition, and hepatitis C turns up. Um, is, is hepatitis C something, how do you go about curing it if it's in the, still in the curative stage? Well, uh, these days we have very simple and very effective treatment. These days treatment is one tablet once a day for anywhere from 8 to 12 weeks, and the cure rate is better than 95%. Wow. That gets rid of the virus. If you have cirrhosis, it doesn't necessarily reverse the cirrhosis. So you, cirrhosis is the biggest risk factor for liver failure and liver cancer. So ideally, we'd like to catch people before they get to the cirrhosis stage. Because if we treat them then, their risk of developing these bad outcomes uh, is virtually zero. And would you, if it had gone past the, the early stages, uh, would uh, liver transplant or you know partial liver transplant work? Uh, yes, I mean these days we um, we trans well. It used to be that hepatitis C was the commonest reason for liver transplantation. Now that we have treatment, it's no longer the commonest reason. Uh, but liver cancer related to hepatitis C and other liver diseases is now the most common cause. And it used to be that um, people who were treated, who had a liver transplant with hepatitis C, that uh, if we were not able to treat the hepatitis C, they tended to have much more aggressive disease after transplant. Now, of course, with the new treatments that we have, these very effective treatments, this is all preventable. So if somebody has hepatitis C at the time of transplant, they get treated after the transplant, and uh, they don't have any further complications from hepatitis C. Or if the hepatitis C is identified prior to transplant, they get treated at that stage. And some people uh, actually no longer need a transplant. So treatment of hepatitis C is very effective. That's great. And so in order to get the blood test that uh, you're yep. recommending, would, uh, sorry? Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, would someone just go to their uh, family doctor? Ideally, yes, uh, and ask for the hepatitis C test. There has been, this has been somewhat controversial, uh, although all the liver disease communities, so the Canadian Liver Foundation, the Canadian Association for the Study of Liver, uh, and many gastroenterologists all recommend screening. There is a body known as the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Health, and they came out with a statement last year 
saying that we should not do screening. And the main reason, well, it was very controversial because their assessment when was, it was reviewed by uh, liver disease experts, there were many, many assumptions in, the, in that document which were quite wrong. And so they came out with a recommendation that there should be no screening, but um, it's, that's really just not tenable because of the, the, all the incorrect assumptions that they made in their study. Okay. So uh, some people might meet some resistance if they go to their doctor to ask for... They might. They might on the basis of that, but they can always quote the Canadian Liver Foundation or the Canadian Association with the Study of Liver, which is a, an organization of liver disease professionals, uh, physicians. They can always quote those recommendations. In fact, the Canadian Association of Study of the Liver came out recently with uh, guidelines on the management of hepatitis C, and they specifically say that there should be screening. So they can quote that article. Okay. And uh, if they still meet resistance, is there, are there any other alternatives? Um, yeah, I'm sure there are. You can go to another doctor, go to a walk-in clinic and ask for testing to be done. Mm -hmm. Some doctors may refuse point blank, but then it basically you have to shop around and find somebody who can do it. But this is not everybody, right? We're talking about people who were born between 1945 and 1975. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, is there anything else that we should be discussing that I haven't asked you about? Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate this. I know you're a busy man, and I do appreciate the, your time with us. Okay, you're welcome. Great interview, Devin. All right. Uh, and uh, we don't have too much time nope. left, so do we want to talk about the race that's happening before the parade on Sunday? Yes, sure. So Five Counties Children's Center. There's a fundraiser for the Five County Children's Center it's a St. Patrick's Day 5K run and walk. So anybody's welcome to go, but uh, it's a fundraiser. It's happening uh, at 1.30 p.m. on St. Patrick's Day, Sunday, March 17th. Cool. Uh, where? Starting from where? It is starting at Peterborough Memorial Center. So you, right. can, you can show up at 12 to, to uh, register, and you can also register in advance, but... Uh, it's going to a good cause, and uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Definitely. And here are the Irish Rovers again with farewell to Nova Scotia. Bye. Bye-bye. Farewell to Nova Scotia, the sea-bound coast. Let your mountains dark and dreary be. When I am far away on the briny ocean coast, Will you ever heave a sigh or a wish for me? The sun was setting in the west The birds were singing on every tree All nature seemed to be at rest But alas, there was no rest for me Farewell to Nova Scotia, the sea-bound coast Let your mountains dark and dreary Far away on the briny ocean toss Will you ever heave a sigh or a wish for me? I grieve to leave my days of home I grieve to leave my comrades all And my parents whom my home so dear And the bonny, bonny lass I do adore Farewell to Nova Scotia, the sea-bound coast Let your mouth Dark and dreary be When I am far away On the briny ocean past Will you ever heave a sigh Or a wish for me The drums do beat And the wars do alarm My captain calls I must obey Farewell, farewell To Nova Scotia's charms For it's early in the morning I am bound far away Farewell to Nova Scotia, the sea-bound coast Let your mountains dark and dreary be When I am far away on the briny ocean toss Will you ever heave a sigh or a wish for me? I have
have two brothers and they are at rest. Their arms are folded on their chest. But a poor simple sailor just like me must be tossed and turned in the deep dark sea. Farewell to Nova Scotia, the sea bound coast. Let your